This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Axe Body Spray. Wish your teenage boy smelled like gasoline? Try Axe Body Spray today. Welcome to episode 50 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. It is Friday, June 25th, and for episode 50, you know we had to pick a fun topic for this week. You can subscribe to the Sweaty Penguin on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will get a shout-out at the end of the show. The other way to get a shout-out? Join our Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also get access to some Sweaty Penguin swag, exclusive bonus content, and more. We just put up a blog post this week, so go check that out. You can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash the Sweaty Penguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash peril and promise. Today, we're talking about turtles, the animal every reptile-obsessed four-year-old will tell you is actually a tortoise. Sometimes it's a turtle, Liam. Sometimes it's a turtle. Beyond always being mixed up with tortoises, turtles are really famous and beloved in the environmental world. We talked a bit about sea turtles back in our Plastic Straw episode in January, and that was because of a viral video posted in 2015 by Texas A&M grad student Christine Figener. While conducting fieldwork in the waters of Costa Rica, she and her colleagues came across a sea turtle with a plastic straw lodged up its nose. The video of that turtle sparked a huge movement against plastic straws, and with it, the idea that cutting back on plastic straws is what's going to save the sea turtles. Just listen to Marav, an eight-year-old who is encouraging others to not use plastic straws. My name is Marav, I'm eight years old, and I eat plastic straws, yes I do! I eat plastic straws, how about you? Wow, that kid came in strong, and I love it. The only thing I do need to point out is that the excitement in the I Hate Plastic Straws song is about 10 billion times more than the Help Save Sea Turtles part, and I don't know about you, but I find saving the turtles more fun than sucking through disintegrating paper. I'm not saying I wanted two songs, but... Actually, yeah, I do. I want two songs, Marav. You nailed the first one, let's get an encore. But this video was actually released in 2015 as part of a campaign through the Plastic Pollution Coalition. And as you can hear, it leaned hard into this popular belief that refusing plastic straws will save sea turtles. Now, we've come at this from the straw side before and showed you how plastic straws do some damage to the environment, although our team couldn't find any other recorded cases of plastic straws lodged in sea turtles' noses. But today, I want to come at this from the sea turtle side, because honestly, I think this is an even bigger reason why the refuse a straw save a turtle refrain is misleading. Sea turtles are facing a lot of threats. Sea level rise, habitat loss, beach and ocean temperature rises, fishing, illegal consumption and trade, light pollution, and plastic pollution going far beyond straws. 
That's not to say Mirav's song is the problem, again, encore please, or to say that using sea turtles in plastic reduction campaigns is the problem, but when sea turtles have that many issues to worry about, refusing plastic straws alone just isn't going to save them. So today, we'll discuss what challenges sea turtles face, what they mean for our oceans and economy, and what we might be able to do about these issues. But first, a little bit about sea turtles. As you can guess from their name, sea turtles spend almost all their time in the sea. They do breathe air, though, so they will pop up to the surface every so often to do that. The one reason sea turtles come onto the land is to lay eggs. But they don't just go to any piece of land. By relying on the Earth's magnetic field for navigation, sea turtles almost always return to the beach where they were born. Which is really amazing. I mean, I'd expect the sea turtles who were the popular kids in high school to return home, but you'd think more of them would be forging their own paths. I get that familiarity is nice, sea turtles, but have you seen the Bahamas? On the beach, the hatchlings need to escape natural predators like birds, crabs, raccoons, and foxes to make it to the sea, and then avoid predatory seabirds and fish in the sea. Because of that, according to the National Ocean Service, very few sea turtles make it to adulthood, with estimates ranging from 1 in 1,000 to 1 in 10,000. Since sea turtles have the odds stacked against them worse than a drunk at a slot machine, it becomes all the more frustrating that humans are making things a lot worse. And let's start with climate change. Sea turtles live in a variety of habitats affected by climate change, a few of which we've talked about on the podcast before. Coral reefs, including the Great Barrier Reef, are undergoing coral bleaching, natural disaster damage, and ocean acidification, leading to major collapses. Globally, we lose a seagrass meadow the size of a soccer field every 30 minutes, in large part due to temperature-induced photosynthesis issues and natural disasters. And mangroves are being damaged by floods, hurricanes, and heavy precipitation, and face additional threats if sea level rise accelerates. That's just a taste of the climate issues facing three sea turtle habitats that the sweaty penguin has covered before, and I don't have time to cover every habitat today, but other sea turtle habitats such as coastal strands, maritime hammocks, barrier islands, lagoons, estuaries, salt marshes, and even the open ocean certainly face similar challenges. When a habitat changes, or in many of these cases collapses, the sea turtles that rely on it might suddenly be out of a home. But climate change doesn't stop there. Climate also alters currents in the water, which can move marine species into new areas, often bringing more predators into sea turtle habitats, or shifting prey out of sea turtle habitats. And climate change, of course, leads to sea level rise, both by warming the water, causing it to expand, and by melting glaciers and ice sheets, which adds water to the ocean. Now you might be thinking, why would sea turtles care about that? I mean, they could find a melting glacier and use it as a literal water slide. But as fun as that sounds, sea level rise is actually causing many of the beaches that sea turtles use for nesting to disappear. According to a study in the journal Conservation Biology predicting the impact of sea level rise on Caribbean sea turtle nesting, up to 32% of the total current beach area could be lost with just a half meter rise in sea level. A half meter! That's the height of a newborn baby, or the length of a Sbarro pizza slice. 
Since scientists are still learning about sea turtle behavior, it's hard to say precisely how sea turtles would respond to these changes. But taking away nesting sites from a species that is wired to return to their birthplace to nest certainly wouldn't be a welcome surprise. And for the beaches that do withstand sea level rise, there's another climate dilemma. Sea turtles, as well as some other reptiles, exhibit what is called temperature-dependent sex determination. This means that instead of being based on X or Y chromosomes, the sex of a sea turtle hatchling is defined by the temperature of the sand in which the eggs were laid in. Hotter sand will produce more females, and cooler sand will produce more males. Now, you'd think lots of female turtles would be good for sea turtle populations, right? More females means more turtles to lay eggs, assuming the males don't believe in monogamy or leaving the toilet seat up. But according to Florida Atlantic University's Dr. Jeanette Weineken, this growing female skew isn't a good thing. Drought years where turtle production is low and it's so hot that everything that comes out of the nest is a female, wow, as long as they can find a date, they've got a future. But if there aren't enough males out there, then, then there's a problem. And that's important again because with changing climates, we're, we're going to see drought areas. That's shocking. I mean, I don't think I've heard the words, if there aren't enough males out there, then there's a problem, since our middle school teachers tried to recruit us for the school play. But knowing the conventional wisdom that a female bias helps conservation, hearing Dr. Weineken say not enough males could be a problem is all the more striking. And unfortunately, her fear could already be coming true. According to a study in the journal Current Biology, turtles originating from the cooler southern Great Barrier Reef nesting beaches were around 65 to 69 percent female, nice. which sounds like a reasonable ratio. But turtles originating from the warmer northern GBR nesting beaches took it to an extreme, with 86.8 percent of adults, 99.8 percent of subadults, and 99.1 percent of juveniles being female. Even if that tiny sliver of boys really steps up to the plate, Dr. Weineken is probably right. We've got a problem. Warmer temperatures means too few male turtles, and having too few males prevents reproduction. And if you can believe it, the environmental threats to sea turtles don't even stop at climate change. Another threat is light pollution, which I won't get into today since we've got an episode on it already. But in short, when sea turtle hatchlings emerge from the sand, they follow the light to find their way back to sea. So because of artificial light coming from inland, many young sea turtles are wandering inland and dying. Then there's bycatch, or unwanted incidental catch in commercial fishing gear. According to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, bycatch is actually the single most serious threat to marine turtles worldwide. In fact, the World Wildlife Fund's marine turtle leader, Amy Leslie, reported that each year, some 29,000 marine turtles are potentially killed just in shrimp trawls that export to the EU. When recent estimates suggest there are only 6.5 million sea turtles left in the world total, 29,000 per year is a pretty sizable dent. On top of that, just like the Friends reunion special, there's the plastic problem. 
An international global change biology study revealed that more than half the world's sea turtles have ingested plastic or other human rubbish. And that figure is really concerning. Plastic ingestion can kill turtles by blocking the gut or piercing the gut wall and can cause other problems through the release of toxic chemicals into the animal's tissues. In fact, a nature study found that a turtle has a 22% chance of dying just by eating one piece of plastic. And I could go on and on and on about all different environmental issues from oil spills to marine pollution to invasive species to beach erosion to coastal armoring and how all these issues impact sea turtles. But sadly, that would take even longer to go through than it would to explain Kylie Jenner and Khloe Kardashian's relationship with Jordan Woods. That would take even longer than it would take for me to figure out who Jordan Woods is and why, according to E!, this is a trending front page news story. But the bottom line is that when we put all these impacts together, we've created a situation where six out of seven sea turtle species in the world are classified as threatened or endangered. What's more, they have been threatened or endangered for the last 30 years. That means we've observed all of these issues for a long time, but still haven't fixed them enough for populations to recover. And with this issue being so high profile on a global scale for so long, it's all the more frustrating to still hear stories like this. So we're in the market in Buchitan, and it's crazy. There's turtle eggs for sale everywhere. Even though it's completely illegal and it's actually a federal crime. I've heard of journalists getting their camera smashed here, so I'm just acting like a tourist and filming on a cell phone. What I can't believe is that they send in the Marines and do such a big show down on the beach so people don't take the eggs and then completely allow the sale of the eggs in the market and the authorities don't seem to be doing anything about it. So there's definitely uh, double standards going on. That was National Geographic investigative reporter John Dickey, and during his experience in Huchitan, Mexico, he found that sea turtle eggs were being illegally harvested and sold. Other parts of the world have issues with illegal consumption too, whether it be poaching sea turtle eggs, shells, bones, or the turtles themselves. And John Dickey's finding, that the authorities make a big show of stopping poaching on the beach, but seem to allow the sale of the eggs on the market, is really striking. They've made themselves look environmentally conscious by banning sea turtle consumption, but then they're not enforcing the rule. That's not to say a ban is the only way to keep sea turtles alive, but if that's the strategy you're going to take, then you have to follow through for it to work. It's like grounding a kid. Sure, it's not the only way to teach the kid a lesson, but if that's your strategy, then you can't let your kid go see Peter Rabbit 2 with his friends Saturday night. Why does all of this matter? Why do we even need sea turtles in the first place? I mean, between Bowser from Super Mario and Shelby from Mickey Mouse, turtles seem like the source of all evil. But in reality, sea turtles are really important. Environmentally, sea turtles play an important role in the nutrient cycle on land by moving organic compounds from foraging grounds in the ocean to nutrient-poor coastal habitats near nesting beaches. Hawksbill turtles help keep coral reefs healthy by eating sponges off them. In fact, a single turtle can eat more than a thousand pounds of sponges per year. Green turtles are one of the few animals to eat seagrass, which helps keep the seagrass beds healthy, sort of like the ocean equivalent of mowing your lawn. And leatherback turtles actually eat jellyfish, 
which as we discussed in the jellyfish episode, are known to cause quite a few problems. In other words, if sea turtles went extinct, our coastal communities and prized marine ecosystems would really fall apart. Sea turtles also help the economy. Obviously, just helping the environment can be translated into economic benefit, and on top of that, sea turtles open up a massive tourism market. Just listen to professional YouTuber Brad Overby share how excited he is to swim with the turtles. We're going to get to meet many, many huge and awesome turtles, maybe even get to pet some and go in the water. And it's going to, oh, look at this big boy here. Look, it's going to be very, oh, the turtles are mating. They are? Oh boy. Hold up. They're making sweet sea turtle love over here. Yikes. Given that they're endangered, I'm glad to hear the turtles are reproducing, but I have to imagine they didn't ask to be videotaped and posted on the internet by a guy named Brad. What if one of those turtles goes into a job interview and Brad's video surfaces? You're messing with turtles' careers, Brad! But people like Brad are exactly why sea turtles can be so beneficial for the economy. He sounds like he's having the time of his life playing with the sea turtles, and when he posts that video to his 1.5 million subscribers, I'm sure some of them will want to do it too. And Brad isn't the only person feeling this way. According to Oceana, scuba divers take an estimated 1.7 million dive vacations each year, spending about $4.1 million annually. And based on their research, 76% of scuba divers were willing to pay an additional fee in return for an increased likelihood of seeing a sea turtle in the wild. The average additional fee was $29.63. Dives do cost thousands of dollars, so that might seem like the scuba diver equivalent of Chipotle raising burrito prices by a few cents, and most people not even noticing. But considering how many dives are taken each year, adding $29 per dive would add up to tens of millions of dollars for this industry. Tens of millions of dollars, all because there's a lot of brads out there that think sea turtles are really cool. So how do we keep sea turtles around for Brad to videotape? Well, on an individual level, I certainly can't make the argument that any action will save the turtles. But if sea turtles have been such a big part of why people have been motivated to wean off of plastic straws, then let's see what else people will do for the turtles, right? Maybe people would be more motivated to reduce their carbon footprint for the turtles. Maybe people would cut back on plastic as a whole for the turtles. Maybe people would turn off their outdoor lighting at night or switch blue lights to red lights to reduce light pollution for the turtles. Maybe people would look into purchasing seafood with a certification that monitors bycatch for the turtles. Maybe people would stop going on illegal covert beach heists to steal sea turtle eggs for the turtles. Again, there's certainly no way to single-handedly save the turtles, but for a lot of people, thinking about the turtles might be enough motivation to adopt some sustainable practices, which can then rub off on friends and family, start conversations, and begin to create impact. There are also some technological innovations that could make a difference. For bycatch, one interesting idea is changing the shape of the fish hooks from the traditional J hook to what's called a C hook, where the hook looks sort of like a cursive C. According to a study in biological conservation, these hooks led to increases in the catch rate of some fish and decreases in others, so it's certainly not a perfect solution. But for sea turtles in particular, capture rates of leatherback and loggerhead turtles declined by 83% and 90% respectively. That's a big deal. I'd even go so far as to say it's consequential. 
I'm just saying, it's a turtle difference maker. Beyond the sea hook, we've also found practices such as setting lines below 100 meters depth, and even creating metal grids that force turtles and other bycatch out of trawl nets, which can help protect sea turtles from commercial fishing. For sea level rise, another commonly discussed solution is that of beach nourishment projects, where engineers will artificially add sand to a diminished beach. Just listen to Liz Cantor of Australia's Gold Coast Beach talk about how great their project will be. The Gold Coast beaches will benefit from a major nourishment project happening between May and October 2017 to increase the volume of sand available along vulnerable sections of our coastline at Palm Beach and along northern Gold Coast beaches from Miami to Main Beach to buffer against future storms and coastal erosion. So according to the Gold Coast beach, the project will benefit them. But will it? In some ways, yes. Obviously, having your beach back brings tourism revenue and some cool sandcastles. But while we might be tempted to think a beach nourishment project will mean sea turtles can use that beach to nest again, that often isn't the case. If the new sand is too different from the old sand, whether it be compacted too much, or a different temperature, or a different moisture content, sea turtles may not be able to nest there, or they may try to nest and run into problems. And that's if the beach nourishment is even successful. Long term, it rarely is. Every time the ocean erodes the beach again, which can happen in the span of just a few years, the project needs to be redone, usually costing taxpayer money. That's not to say it's impossible for a beach nourishment project to help sea turtles, since there are ways for these projects to be less harmful and more effective. But given that Liz Cantor says later in this video that when their team chooses where to put the sand, they're considering which areas are best suited for surfing, I have a hard time believing sea turtles are in the front of their minds. What about policy? Well, there's a lot to consider there. On the one hand, a lot of policy already exists, from state-level laws like the Marine Turtle Protection Act in Florida, to federal laws like the Endangered Species Act, to international treaties like the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. But even though many policy measures are in place, they tend to be really difficult to enforce. The Endangered Species Act in particular is famous for creating lengthy legal battles, and the animals certainly don't always get the win, which honestly isn't surprising when judges and juries are all people. I mean, why aren't we calling sea turtles for jury duty? That would make it so much more fun! Of course, there are other approaches too, from certification schemes to community conservation efforts to even using market incentives. But ultimately, when there are still so many threats to sea turtles and six of seven species have been listed as endangered for 30 years, it's hard to imagine these conservation efforts turning the tide on their own. They're certainly important to stop the bleeding, but it might be just as important, if not more, to also think about the threats to sea turtles and consider policies that curb climate change bycatch, light pollution, plastic pollution, and illegal trade. Because if we can actually mitigate all these threats to sea turtles, we'll have a healthier marine environment, stronger tourism industry, and a lot more turtles in the world for us to confuse with tortoises. Do you wish teenage boys stopped smelling bad and started smelling bad, but in a different way? Then Axe Body Spray is for you. With Axe Body Spray, you've got a bottle full of toxic chemicals like phthalates linked to adverse health effects. And if you douse your kid in enough of it, he'll be able to smell like a freshly cleaned toilet. Still think he smells bad? Just keep spraying. Axe Body Spray. 
because teenagers are too young to start dating. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Mark Hammond, an associate professor of marine biology at James Cook University. Dr. Hammond, welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So sea turtles seem to be one of the most commonly discussed species whenever we're talking about the environment. I think polar bears are like that too sometimes. Sea turtles come up with climate change, plastic pollution, fishing, coastal development, chemical runoff, the list goes on and on. So why are sea turtles so prominent in the environmental world? Are they uniquely affected by environmental issues in ways other species aren't? It's because they capture the hearts and the minds of lots of people. They're also really strongly uh, entwined in lots of indigenous and first nations cultures so there's you know there's a very deep history of of turtles in in people and society more recently though i think yeah they've just become a flagship for lots of environmental movements and they've captured the minds of lots of different people you know there's an adventure going out on the beach at night looking for turtles people are fascinated by seeing them on dive sites and dive trips so yeah they're just a species that have captured people's attention and they just get used by many different environmental organizations and environmental causes as a, as a flagship one of the issues you've extensively studied is the impact of plastic pollution on sea turtles and we talked a bit in our plastic straw episode about how sea turtles sort of became the poster child for straw bans even though straws really aren't the biggest threat turtles face from plastic Having studied sea turtles in marine environments, what are your thoughts on the public discourse around plastic pollution as it stands today? Now, this is a really interesting question. We get asked this a lot, actually, because, as you said, you know, turtles get used as this poster child for, in particular, the, the marine plastics issue. And that's not to say there aren't any issues for marine turtles. They are certainly impacted by plastic pollution right across their range, but to very different degrees depending upon the geographic space they're living in, but also the size of the turtles as well. So really what we know is that the ability of an animal, any animal to eat plastic depends on the size of the plastic and the size of the animal. And where you get animals eating things that are slightly too big for their digestive tract, that's when you get some problems. So we know that of all of the types of, all of the species of turtles and all of the life stages, it's those young, small, you know, smaller than a dinner plate size pelagic turtles that are the most affected because they're, First of all, they're living in environments where there's lots of plastic fragments, but they're also opportunistic feeders. So they're foraging, you know, basically on anything that looks or smells like a piece of food. So, yes, the, the impacts are, they vary across the world and they vary across all of the different species. So there's no one uniform giant pressure that, that's occurring on them. Again, they just captured the way people think about the environment and, and people don't like plastic in the environment and people certainly saw the, the videos of the straw uh, being extracted from the nostril of a turtle and people see other videos of them, you know, after they've died from plastic and all those. And those images are shocking and they, and they generate emotion and they generate impact and it, and it leads people to use them to want to, I guess, rally for a cause. Whether that's, you know, distracting from other real issues that turtles have got, you know, I don't really know. We don't have a lot of data on that, but um, certainly be an interesting avenue to investigate. 
Climate change, of course, heavily impacts sea turtles as well, and one major concern there is that when the sea turtles return to the beach to nest, the beach might be gone because of sea level rise. Obviously, that's not to say there are no beaches, so how big of an impact will this have on sea turtle populations moving forward? Climate change is arguably, and it probably is, the, the looming as the largest threat to marine turtles right across the planet because essentially of those two reasons that you mentioned, we've got rising air and sea surface temperatures, and we also have rising sea levels. And those two things are going to impact turtles in different ways and to different degrees. The sea turtle hatchlings, when, when the eggs are incubating in the nest, the sex of the hatchlings that come out of those eggs depends upon the temperature of the sand. So the warmer the sands, the more females you get, the cooler the sands, the more males. So as we start to increase global air temperatures, it's going to increase those sea and sand temperatures and leading to more females in the population. We don't really know how many males you need to, to make a sustainable sea turtle population. That's really a question that the modelers are starting to get at now. What we do know though is that some populations of sea turtles, one for example in the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef, we know that pretty close to 100% of the eggs are producing female hatchlings because the sands are already so warm. So in these kinds of situations where we've got rising sand temperatures producing too many females, there's lots of ways that we can, I guess, intervene to, to reduce those temperatures down. We can use shade cloth or shade systems to cool down the beach. We can plant trees, etc., along the coastline, creating more shade. There's experiments at the moment where people are using water sprinklers to I guess, supplement rainfall, right, on, on beaches and cool the sand down. But there's other ways we can do it, which I guess are more controversial and, and probably more expensive, and that's to start finding the male-producing beaches and protecting them. I think where we need to shift to you know, now is to start looking for the cooler beaches where the turtles might be nesting in very small numbers, but those beaches might be highly important producing male turtles, and we need to find them and protect them. And I think that's, in the long term, that's going to pay the highest dividends. My understanding from our research was that female turtles will return to the beach where they were born to nest. So we've got lots and lots of female hatchlings on the hotter beaches and less females from the cooler beaches since they produce males too. Following that logic, I would think that within the overall sea turtle population, there would be more females that came from a hotter beach than females that came from a cooler beach. So when it comes for them to lay eggs, even if you've preserved these cooler beaches, you'd still have more females going back to the hotter ones since they returned to where they were born and that's where most of them were born. I hope that logic makes sense, but is that true? Should we be concerned about females just not going to the cooler beaches since they weren't born there? So the hatchlings coming off a beach when they reach maturity and eventually come back to breed, you know, some decades later, they won't necessarily come back to the same beach or the same place on the beach. They'll come back to the same general region. So in our region of the Barrier Reef, we might have, you know, 15 different islands and a couple of mainland beaches that green turtles nest on. The hatchlings will come, might be born on one island, but they might come back to nest as an adult on a different island, but in the same region. So it's not so... I guess it's not so tightly bound to uh, hatching and beach. What that means is that you can have beaches that are producing hatchlings. When those hatchlings reach maturity, if the beach they were born on doesn't exist, they're going to find another beach. Or a proportion of them, a small proportion, will be nesting in the fringe locations, and it's those areas that might be producing the males. What you're waiting for, essentially, is for those peripheral areas to build up in number, which is a generational thing, right? It's not <laughs> not going to happen over a few years. It's 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 going to take 
40, 50 years for that to happen in a large number. So there's a lot of discussion around the fact that sea turtle populations are skewing female, since one could argue more females is a good thing, since that's more turtles laying eggs, but not enough males can cause problems. Are you worried about the female-to-male ratio as it stands now? We're concerned because of two reasons. First of all, we don't really know how many males you need. Maybe you need one male for a you know, 10 females. One, maybe you need one male per 100. We, we don't really know the answer to that. What we do know is you need some males and the males need to be able to find the females in the breeding sites to, to enable the eggs to be fertilised, etc. So we're concerned because we don't really know how far that system can be pushed in terms of, you know, making sure we've got enough females in the future to sustain the population. The other reason we're concerned is that there's an upper limit of temperature. So if the sand temperatures get too high, then no embryos or no eggs will survive. So and sand temperature rises from the coolest sands that you can produce hatchlings. You start producing males. Then, of course, you hit a, hit a temperature zone where you start producing females. And then eventually you're going to reach a threshold where the sand temperature is too hot for any embryos to survive. And that's the threshold we, we definitely don't want to cross. Another big impact of climate change is, of course, coral bleaching. And you're in Queensland, Australia, right next to the Great Barrier Reef. You study there extensively. What are some of the things you've seen during your field work on the reef, looking at the sea turtles that live there? The coral bleaching is certainly a really, it's a deep and uh, very severe problem, in, in not just in the Barrier Reef, but right the way through the range of coral species. What we tend to find, though, is that the turtles are using the coral reef systems mostly for their habitat and mostly for their habitat structure. So hawksbill turtles, for example, uh, green turtles, they're living and, and they're, I guess, sleeping and resting up under the coral bommies and the coral refuges. And then they're coming out and they're foraging on algae or seagrass, etc., in the general reef environment. So it's all kind of connected. We, we haven't seen any impacts where we can say, right, that, that reef is bleached, therefore the turtles aren't there anymore. We, we don't have that kind of data. What we have is a system where all of these parts are, you know, they've evolved to work in harmony, and now we're changing one system in a dramatic way, the, the coral, and it's likely to have flow-on responses to lots of other components of the ecosystem. And we're really, in terms of the turtle links, we're really just really starting to understand those, those things now. In 10 years' time, we'll probably have a lot better understanding of how the turtles will respond. One of your recent papers looked at what you call the Conservation and Enforcement Capacity Index as it pertained to marine turtle protections in various regions. Could you tell us a bit about what this Conservation and Enforcement Capacity Index is and some of this paper's findings? Yes, that, that paper, the, the paper on the on the SESI index was really designed by one of my former PhD students, Hector, who was working a lot in the Caribbean and I guess the Latin American countries. And what he was seeing was, I guess, the challenge of determining status assessments, for lack of a better word. So trying to understand whether a species or a management unit of a, of a turtle is increasing or declining. And he was starting to notice that there was quite strong links between the conservation potential and the capacity within a country to be able to make a change, either government-wise or social, political, economic change, etc. So he started seeing that it was pretty clear that turtle species that were nesting, breeding, living in the waters of developed countries, you know, Australia, the US, etc., had a higher chance of being recovered because we had the capacity and the capital in those countries to be able to do it. 
and the people were more invested, I guess, in this kind of Western conservation ideals. I think one of the real challenges is that these marine turtles are migratory and they take a long time to, to go from hatchling to maturity. So you can have turtles nesting in one country, but then at the end of the nesting season, they're migrating to another. And if you have different conservation efforts or uh, different ability to conserve turtles in the two different areas, then things can easily get out of balance. So I think what we really need to do, and I think the global community of researchers, but also management agencies is starting to do this now, is understand the connections between where the turtles are breeding, where they're migrating, and then where they're living. So we can use satellite tracking, we can use genetic markers, etc. And once we've got those connections, then we can start to put I guess dual protection or, or multiple protection strategies in place. So we're not just protecting one component of the life stage, we're protecting the life cycle. You mentioned at the beginning that sea turtles have a lot of value to some indigenous cultures. How have indigenous communities been involved in sea turtle conservation to this point, And how can they be better included in these efforts? I guess the historical and the indigenous links are going to differ you know, throughout the world and they're going to differ between different indigenous and first nations societies. What I know in Australia is that the Indigenous groups, they essentially have land ownership over most of Northern Australia and they have land ownership over many of the large and main marine turtle nesting areas across Northern Australia. So they're invested in, in the, the issue and they're invested in solutions and they're invested in the management plans going forward. We can always do more and, and management agencies or NGOs or local governments, etc., that are doing the monitoring or the research, et cetera, can always do more to be more inclusive with Indigenous people, but with all stakeholders. In Australia, there's, there's a lot of Indigenous groups that are heavily invested and they run monitoring programs and they're designing management plans and mitigation exercises and they're really at the forefront of a lot of the monitoring. There's places in Northern Australia where there's really only Indigenous people living and working in, in, in the area and they're designing the monitoring, they're heading out on the beaches, every night for many months on end, collecting all of the information. And it's essentially them and their groups of people that are saving whole management units or whole areas of, of nesting from things like predation by feral animals or uh, you know, sea level rise or things like that. So you know, there's a lot of really positive things that the indigenous groups in Australia are doing, but we can always be doing more. I know that you've already mentioned a few ways in which we can help sea turtles moving forward through conservation efforts, but at least from what I can tell, none of this goes away without addressing climate change, commercial fishing, illegal trade, light pollution, plastic, etc. And that starts to get really overwhelming if you're a policymaker and see all these different issues at once. So what would be your advice to policymakers as they try to contend with that? Is there a sort of next baby step we can take? I think... The way forward is to think about it in smaller sectors. So let's let's think about it in terms of what do we need to do to protect and conserve loggerhead turtles in Queensland? And that might be very different than what you have to do in Florida to protect and conserve loggerhead turtles in Florida or uh, South Africa, for example. So we have to acknowledge that within a species, there might be very different things policymakers can do in different parts of the world to save their turtles in their patch. And the first thing we need to do is understand the threats, understand the degree to which the threats are impacting the species, and then work on ways that we can prioritise the management or the interventions, because there's going to be management or interventions where we get greater bang for our buck, for lack of a better word, than, than others. So first of all, we need to understand the, the differences, and then we need to understand the threats and the degree and the prioritisation of them. And that lets us 
highlight the key issues that we need to work on, say, in the next five, 10 years to make a difference. Dr. Hammond, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This wraps up episode 50 of The Sweaty Penguin. Remember, you can get a shout out by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict. That helps boost us in their algorithms. You can also get a shout out by joining our Patreon. And not just a shout out, but merch, bonus content, even a chance to win a signed book from one of our experts. Head to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin to unlock all that cool stuff and help grow the show. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash peril and promise. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Olivia Amate and Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Robert Branning, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. Clips today came from Plastic Pollution Coalition, PBS NewsHour, National Geographic, Drift OR, and City of Gold Coast.